Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, I am joined by Angles Tejeda. Angles is a trial lawyer focusing on consumer claims defense, cybersecurity, and privacy litigation. He's also a thoughtful and compassionate advocate for diversity and inclusion. He's a naturalized U.S. citizen, and he serves on several boards. And today, we are talking about empathy. You know that I always start the podcast with my famous first question, and I gave you a heads up, so let's talk about it. If you take away all references to work, school, volunteerism, um, sports, uh, church related activity, all those things that we talk about when we say, this is what I do and what I'm proud of. Um, if you take all of that away, I'm really interested in who are, what are you most proud of as a person, as a human being and why? For me, I think what I'm most proud of is the, the role that I have uh, accepted and nurtured and worked on as a big brother to my sister, the best brother I can possibly be to my little sister, um, who isn't so little anymore. She's 31, 32 this uh, next month. Um, but I, I, um, I think, you know, my, my sister was born with a cognitive disability. And, um, and there is a big challenge in this because it's not something that is evident or, um, you know, um, it's latent and you don't recognize it. And I certainly didn't become aware of it until, uh, you know, I was way into my teen, teen years. And I was in my late teens when I finally, it kind of clicked. I, I was just discussing this actually last night with a friend of mine um, saying that, uh, I, I've been in the United States for a while. And so she was growing up in the Dominican Republic where we don't have the infrastructure to deal with these issues. And I remember that I would, um, even as a teen, start sending money back home to have her go to private schools because we were worried that she wasn't advancing 
fast enough. And it was incredibly frustrating to go back home. Academia has always been easy for me. Um, and so I would go back home and we would try to do math problems and, and it just wasn't getting there. Um, and then, and that was frustrating. It was, um, it was just difficult. And I, I remember that that period of time in my late teens, early young adulthood, when I finally understood, you know what, this is different and it's not something she can change. It's going to be a challenge forever. And most importantly for me, I think, was the realization that um, this was a role that I would have to fulfill, that I, I had to, um, you know, this was an obligation that I think I have. And um, it, it, to me, it's where it, assuming that role is probably what I'm most proud of. I think it's a life um, term commitment. And I think it's very similar to what many parents experience. I, I'm not a parent, um, but I think it's, it's that realization, just having that realization that um, this is someone that I need to take care of. And um, I don't think since that time, there is no major decision that I've taken in my life that hasn't included that analysis. How is this going to affect um, my ability to be there for her? I, and I, you know, I, again, it's, I think you are very smart to start with that kind of a question. It kind of gets to the core uh, of it, but it is definitely, in my view, what's shaped much of my adulthood and, and the rest of my life. It's just realizing that um, this is someone I need to take care of. And, and I'm really proud of having developed um, an interest in, in that obligation. I think we're, we're giving a lot of incentives to think of ourselves and to uh, let people kind of deal with their problems and grow on. And the big challenge I think we're going to be talking a lot about a lot about this today. But the big challenge is to pause and think about your impact on other people's lives, and you know, and how much of other people's problems you need to take on. Um, yeah, it, I for me, it's led to a much fuller life. So I'm really proud of that. I love that so much. I completely get it, and I see. Even in the conversation, as you describe that relationship, there are little moments when you were thinking about it that I could see the emotion bubbling up within you. And yeah. those are the things that I wish we in our lives had more opportunity to talk about because those moments are are actually where we see empathy, right? Where we feel it, where I can, like when you were talking about how deeply important this is to you, how every single decision that you make in your life, every major decision has that as a piece of it and how important she is to you. There's no way to separate the emotion of that with the decision-making of that as well, like how deeply important that is to you. And so I appreciate your willingness to start in that way and to talk about this because there's going to be a bit of this in our conversation. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I think ultimately empathy is a little bit is difficult to talk about. It seems like it might not be, but it actually, if like we really talk about it, it might be. And I think uh, <laughs> this is going to be a very Brene Brown centered uh, episode because her <laughs> research is so important to this. And I wanted to bring up this whole aspect because her research is has shown that being truly connected to under other individuals is 
something that we're wired for as humans. It's how we find Mm -hmm. purpose and meaning. It's what we do. Like it's the place that provides us that real humanity. Um, And her research has also shown us that it's shame that disconnects us from that, from each other. But the antidote to shame is empathy. Mm. And so with that being said, I just want to be clear that we're we're not going to be able to talk about empathy without also talking about other concepts like shame right. and belonging and disconnection and what that means. So with all that being said, I provided many subject matters to you to talk about today yeah. and you chose empathy. So talk to me about why. Yeah. Why, why did that resonate for you? Right. Well, you know, uh, you know that I'm in the line of business. I mean, I'm a trial lawyer and um, my job is primarily to solve problems, right? To, to come out um, of a situation and, and um, provide a solution for a client. And it's funny, we, they, what we see, when we think of typically is we're going to go into court and we're going to win. And we certainly want to do that. I certainly enjoy doing that. Um, but much most of trial work uh, in the modern day is conflict resolution. And a key part of conflict resolution is understanding not just your side, which we adopt entirely. I mean, I, I, I had a, a partner who used to tell me, you know, we just, we become the client, right? We learn every detail. Um, but, but perhaps the more important part of conflict resolution is understanding the other side. You know, and we don't have to sympathize with them. We don't have to agree with their position. Most times we don't, but we have to understand it. And you have to understand it at a core level. The more difficult the problem, the more difficult the problem is, the more important it is how that you understand the other side's position. Um, and the more challenging it becomes to do so. And so, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this and I, that I, that I uh, like this subject is because I struggle with it on a daily basis, right? Um, we, uh, you know, so, so there is that part. And I think just in terms of, uh, you know, kind of more of a meta um, level, it really, given all the conflicts that, that we've experienced during the past few years, um, and that probably uh, most people experience, I think, at a certain point in their lives. I think, you know, we talk a lot about how there is so much tension now. I think if you asked, if you went back and you asked um, people 20 years ago, they would see a lot of conflict as well. But most of these issues that we see in a plural society deal with this notion of empathy. How can I see things um, from your perspective if just for a little bit? I don't have to agree with them. Hopefully, I'll be able to convince you of my way um, but, or to see the world the way that I see it. But uh, it starts with, I think, understanding what this, the other person is, is seeing and where they're coming from. So that, to me, that's why it's such an interesting topic, I think. Um, I remember, and I, I tend to do this a lot, I've realized recently, but I quote Barack Obama a lot, um, misquote him. Um, but I do, I, I think that, um, you know, that there are many reasons for that. But one of the things that someone asked him, what do you, what is the most important quality for a Supreme Court justice? You know, these nine people who make decisions that affect so many people, uh, in, not just in the United States, but um, globally, really. And uh, his response was a great justice has to have 
empathy. You have to be able to understand where people are coming from um, to make the kind of decisions that you're making. I think it's it's a quality that applies to anyone in leadership um, or just to anyone really who wants to be happy. I, we, we, we talk about um, the things that make people uneasy and unhappy. And this, this concept of empathy, I think, plays a big role in that. If you start understanding why people do the things that you do, um, you tend to have an easier life yourself, I think. I'm interested in how empathy shows up at work. I know that there is, Yeah. I know that the research shows that empathy, especially expressed by leaders, can make for a better workplace. But yes. um, I'm also interested, I'm interested in a couple of things about that. Um, so one is about, you know, how can leaders and colleagues exercise empathy with each other, um, which then given that, then how can we do that without burning out? Because it takes so much emotional energy. So much um, energy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and sometimes we just don't have time for that kind of emotional energy. So like, I'm really, right. and we're all feeling it so much right now in the middle of a pandemic that feels like we're yes. spending a lot more emotional energy than we normally would. Yes. Um, uh, uh, the pandemic, the racial issues, the politics, the um, all the noise that, that the insecurity that we're all experiencing. Yes, yes. Um, for me, uh, I think I mean you touched on a couple of things. One is empathy from leadership. And I think most leaders now uh, understand that concept, and I think that they all have for some time. I think all good leaders have for for quite some time, and they express it differently. The the difference. Um, and, and the changes that we're seeing is that we're being challenged to, to display more empathy than sympathy. I think that traditionally leadership, uh, particularly in corporate settings, has been really, um, it's all about sympathy, right? We, they, they care about, and you will see this, I mean, you see this historically when you talk about, when you read about the great business men mostly um you know the, <laughs> it feels very like paternalism They're yes there. yes 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 and, and it also feels and, and you hear about how you know ford um wanted to make sure that everybody could buy a car so and you you have all these stories and, and you and when you interview people who work closely they'll tell you how fantastic these people were but what they are expressing is really mostly sympathy. These are people who care deeply about people who shared um, perspectives with them or life experiences. What the moment demands for now is empathy, right? Mm. Um, we want people to understand or to, 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 to give space, particularly to folks who don't share their life experiences, right? And in the idea and in, in the science and, and, and the demand is that um, by doing that, it will improve all outcomes, including business outcomes. Um, that's hard. And I think leadership is it's still very much from a certain demographic, you know, statistically. Um, and so it is a challenge for them. I think it's also a challenge for employees to think about that and to, to empathize with their leadership, right? And to think about how did these people get there and why do they act the way they do? Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, the, 
the again the moment demands that we not make excuses for people to act in certain, in certain ways right there is no longer um, a excuse and I've, I've heard this said in many different ways particularly around the racial uh, discussion the race relations discussions that and um, we don't I don't want to uh, excuse your discomfort anymore or, or give you a, you know say that you're uncomfortable because of your background and you know this isn't really you it's just the way you were raised or whatever i don't want to make those kinds of excuses and i i understand that perspective and i empathize and sympathize with that position um, but if we're going to change this right if we're going to change behavior around race relations and issues like that in the work environment we are going to have to empathize with both sides um, and we're going to have to give some room for people to evolve on mm. those issues. So from the leadership, that's how I see it. Um, as individually, um, I think I spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, trying to understand the struggles that all individuals come in with and all the insecurities that people come in with. Um, even your most competitive colleague, right, has this incredible insecurities that if you just pause to look to understand and to, to, to pay attention, you'll notice. Um, there is, you know, for the concept of privilege comes up a lot in this conversation because um, all of us in one way or another um, having advantage over someone else at work, even though, you know, we may not recognize it. And just to think about, um, you know, this happens in my case, it happens a lot on the, in terms of gender with my women colleagues, right? Um, I'm in rooms sometimes where I hear things that are inappropriate and that I, or, or I hear um, or I see behavior that I, you know, if I didn't pay attention to and, I, you know, would, would just go by the wayside. But, but that when you think about, um, kind of demonstrates why we still have issues with the wage gap and, and that sort of thing. And it's at those moments where it's really hard to empathize and to drum up the courage to say something and, and to act up. And it's not a, you know, a paternalistic thing or I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm your protector type thing. It's a um, basic notion of if I were to think about, okay, this is why, you know, we're having these issues with um, the difference between how men and women are treated at work and how they're advancing. Um, you, can, you can draw on empathy in those moments and I think we must if we're gonna change it. Um, so that's how I see it mostly. It's um, both the relationship with the leadership but also the relationship with each other, with, with um, colleagues who are different. Um, and, and, you know, and again, this goes, it's not, I think a lot about it for underrepresented groups because that's my experience right it's it's there i walk into a room and i'm the only black person or gay person or whatever um but it's also uh towards the majority right there is quite a bit of pressure uh and i think there is a potential for backlash and we have to figure out how to manage this um but there's quite a bit of pressure on people who are um, from the majority, both the ones who want to be strong allies and the ones who don't, right? And you have to wonder why is that, you know, how are they viewing this moment? If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website 
at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we're speaking with Angles Tejeda. Let's jump back in. I know that you have done some um, of your own volunteer work in lots of different areas. Yeah, I brought. I, I had questions about both of those. So in one place, yeah. I um, I know that you have particularly been active in the diversity and inclusion efforts, yes. um, professionally as well as personally. And I know that I've like personally asked you to mentor individuals, yeah. um, related to that. And I I'm interested in your thoughts about the ways that empathy plays a role in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. efforts, um, both either in a professional or uh, community space. What do you, tell yes. me about that. Well, it's, it's critical. Um, again, you know, the, the, the goal of inclusion in particular um, is empathy, really, in a way, right? Um, it, it's, it's easy to sympathize, to, to be inclusive for people you sympathize with, right? So it's really easy for me to include in my circles um, other immigrants, um, now LGBTQ people and um, like-minded, quote-unquote, progressives. That, that's all easy, and we do that. I think it's harder to broaden that circle and to bring in all those other perspectives that make America amazing. You know, it's, it's an amazing plural place. Um, we just have this rich diversity. Um, it, that, it didn't just happen, you know, it takes quite a bit of work, um, but, but we have folks from just about everywhere here in our communities, even in some of what we perceive to be most segregated and homogenous, you will find people um, who are very different. And, and so to me, inclusion is all about empathy. It's all about um, trying to look at things from a different perspective and about some self-restraint, right? You don't have to be right all the time and you don't have to share all of your perspectives all the time. And I think this is gonna be, this has been something that has been hard for me to, to, <laughs> to grasp, right? Um, and sometimes we just need to worry about, um, you know, where the commonalities are. That said, I think that many people, the, the reason that, that, that inclusion as, when, as it relates to diversity is so difficult is that many people's perspectives, the, the things that get in the way are deeply held beliefs and they are sincerely held beliefs, right? Um, it's not superficial. It's not um, lack of uh, intelligence or, um, you know, it, people think the way they do in many times, many times because, um, of a sincere uh, belief. And, and I think, um, or uh, rephrase, people's beliefs are, uh, deeply held beliefs are typically very sincere, right? They're, they truly believe that, um, you know, uh, open border, that, that, that allowing 
and unlimited numbers of, of immigrants, it's going to be the result of some of these policies that we're pushing and that that's going to uh, dramatically change the character of the nation for the worse. Um, you know, to talk about one of those politically charged um, conflicts, uh, or they they genuinely believe that um, that the notion of pushing diversity and inclusion at work is really to push uh, a certain group to give a certain an advantage to a certain group who isn't any longer um, discriminated against. That that's a genuinely held belief by some of these folks that, um, and it's, it's a complex one. One, there is no longer this whole notion of, um, of uh, discrimination. These people aren't really being discriminated. Number two, um, these policies are gonna give them an advantage to my disadvantage. And so we have to address those things if we're gonna move forward um, as a society. And I think we, we have been addressing these issues. I often say that the United States, from my perspective, uh, deals with race issues much better than most places that are struggling with it. We are, it's a constant struggle here. It's a constant discussion. Um, and as I a result, we move forward. You're putting it in context though, because yeah. you know, we might, the, those of us who live in the United States are like, yeah, yeah. this is super hard. And you're saying, yeah. yes, it is. It is. But you're doing it a is. pretty good job in terms of that, or at least you're yeah. doing better than other places. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it we do a it, we do a very good job on this front, and I think there are very few places um, that have that can show results better than ours. Um, in fact, I can't think of any uh, in, in our, our scale, right? And, I, and I've had the the um, privilege of, of traveling quite a bit and having family live in, in many different societies, you know, far abroad, where I always say that we're kind of just nomads. We, we've left from our small island in the Caribbean and just kind of, you know, I've, I've, I've got family in, in Europe and several countries and um, Asia and so on and South America. And um, we deal with this issue of race better in my opinion, than most of those places. Now, I think we are supposed to, right? That's the, what we've taken on. And, and I think we play a huge role in that process, in, in the world stage on that issue. Um, and it's a hard thing to deal with, but we deal with it. And, and I personally am fairly proud of that and of being a part of that conversation. So, um, you know, those things that you were talking about earlier, and um, to me, that's my contribution to this, to, to, to this um, uh, mission that, that the nation has taken on of being a plural society and understanding um, and advancing humanity uh, through empathy in that way. I love that. I know that you did some volunteer work at, with doing legal counsel mm. um, for individuals who were trying to immigrate. Um, yeah, it's to the US people who are seeking US. asylum. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did how would issues of um, inclusion or shame or blame, I guess, would how do those mm -hmm. show up in those spaces? I feel like that's a pretty particular context for where that exists. Yes, it's it's a. I spoke about this uh, at my firm. Um, so here's the way I looked at this. I I. I spent time in the military as well, in the US Army, and we, 
did two missions. I did one to Kosovo and one to Iraq. And both of those yeah, implicated a large number of refugees, particularly the Kosovo, um, where there were a lot of displaced people and you know, we were placing folks around. And so um, I viewed my missions with, my, my missions in the military informed quite a bit of how I perceived the, the uh, issue of refugees or people seeking asylum in foreign lands. And I, um, when it came to our own shores, and because we're in a politically charged uh, environment, I should say that from my perspective, this is something that affects both parties. I think we're about to see it. We saw a little bit of it during the Obama administration, then we saw it during the past administration. I think we're going to see it again this coming administration pretty quickly here. Um, that this is that this is a difficult issue, right? And, and like all difficult issues, they can be politicized easily. And, but this is a very tough thing to address, um, no matter where you're coming from. And when, when you go there, and, 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 and so when I, when I showed up to the uh, border uh, a couple of years ago with a, a couple of colleagues um, to represent immigrants who were seeking asylum, uh, my perspective was, uh, that I was there as their advocate. And I expected our government to have their best attorneys doing their best jobs to, um, to make the case on who should come in and who shouldn't, to evaluate. I assume good faith, even though um, you know, many of the folks who are involved in this space would point to evidence otherwise. But my job was to assume good faith that their, the, my, my opponent's job, the government's attorney's job was to uh, demonstrate that this person wasn't entitled to admission through the asylum process because of XYZ evidence. And my job was to do the opposite, to put together evidence that um, this person was, and then we would submit it to a process. And I think, um, you know, talking about when, when it comes to empathy, um, the challenge for both sides, for both professionals in this environment is to think about the other side's perspective, right? And, 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 and it's difficult because in this case, the, it's not just any case. We're talking about people's lives. And if you believe the stories that they're telling you, which many times I found very, not just credible, but verifiable, um, this was truly a matter of life and death. And so it becomes not just a philosophical discussion, it becomes a matter of, um, of that, you know, of, of whether or not these people are going to live if you don't get them in. If you don't do a good enough job to grab them in, um, I think you it's know. Pressure, gosh, that's pressure. It is incredible pressure, and, and, and you know, I the work that I do is all commercial litigation. A lot of uh, commercial bankruptcies. I mean, it's just money. And we people will come out fine, right? And we we have a system. But in these cases, this were, you know, I I interview people who had these horrendous stories, and sometimes they seemed um, fantastical. They they seem. Uh, unrealistic and then you would go back and you would do some research and you would pull up some newspaper articles and you would see photos of, of you know evidence evidence um, supporting the the stories that they're talking about raping um, and, and kidnappings and torture and, and those sorts of things um, and that is happening today we're not reading about it you know I wasn't reading about it in a textbook I was hearing it from 
folks who had experienced it. Um, so it, I think, again, you know, it's critical uh, to, the, to stay on topic, the, the issue of empathy. I think empathy is critical to figuring out those cases. Now, I think the challenging part was both seeing the other side, the government side, right? In, in terms of the, the argument, we heard, heard many arguments, but a few that stuck with me were, you know, um, this is a very dangerous journey. And so you shouldn't put your kids through it. Um, I heard uh, the argument of many people abuse this system. And, you know, and I, I actually had some familiarity with that. Um, and, you know, just, just kind of, Seeing the, the counter argument is, is challenging. It is also challenging, I think, to empathize with the people who, who were trying to take advantage of the system, right? Who heard you can get through if you go and you claim that you've been persecuted. And then you think, well, you know, why are you faking this? Why are you pretending that? And you have to think hard about why is it that they're doing it and ask if you were in their position, would you? You know, would you, if you heard that you could migrate to a place where there was security, where there was, you know, relative food security, relative um, peace and, and, and prosperity, wouldn't you try it too? Um, and that I think is a big challenge um, for, for folks. Um, to work through. It, it was a challenge for me, um, but it, it was, it was a great opportunity. And I think one of the things that I'm really grateful um, having been able to do during the last few years. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, especially in terms of um, how empathy can show up as a practicing attorney, of course, like when I think about, it, I think that as you talked about the adversarial nature mm -hmm. seems difficult for like a kind of a juxtaposition to an empathic response, but I'm interested that there, it could be, I was thinking about this, there could be that the, there's a difference between blame and accountability yeah. and, and accountability may be the space that you sit in when you're in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I mean, that's really well put. I think um, there are definitely consequences to our actions and, and we have to get there. You know, we, we, that's the role of law is to try and, and balance those things out. Um, for me, where, uh, where empathy comes in um, a lot is in just trying to figure out what is it that will help solve the conflict? What is it that will help um, the other side and in both sides really feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this outcome, you know, um, and it, it, that's hard. It's hard to to get there I, because I think you're right that the easiest the easiest path is blame, right? To say it's your fault, and so because it's your fault, I am not giving an inch. And, and that makes a lot of sense, especially in that adversarial nature, because yes, yes blame yes, is yes. how you discharge your hurt. And yep. people are always in some t space of hurt in those yes. situations. Yes, I mean, you, you are an attorney. So you, you've been through this. You understand that um, we always say uh, your case is strongest the first day when you hear your side's perspective, your clients, right after your client, your first client interview, you have the best case possible, you know, because you've just heard this perspective and it's emotionally charged and, um, and everything is on your side. And then you start hearing the other side and you got to balance that out. 
Um, but a, a lot of that has to do, you know, it starts with the blame. Eh? It's their fault and so on. And so you got to work from that backwards. And some, you know, most times um, our job is to say, yes, you're right to, to our client. But, um, but I think true conflict resolution, I think, um, you know, in terms of access to justice and the cost of justice and all of that, um, you truly add value when, in, in my line of business, when you pause and think about these issues and think, um, you know, and you, you employ empathy in thinking, what is it that both sides want? If you are really going to do this, um, it's very draining to try to understand the other party's perspective every single time, right? And 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 to truly understand it, to to dig in, that's going to be too draining and too big of a mission. But I think where I start there, because it allows me to then be okay with the differences, right? I it's fine if you disagree with me on some of these points. Now let's talk about you know, the outcome of that and how much we can, we can share, um, where can we intersect and where we can't, you know, um, let's take the women issue. You know, I believe that women should be allowed to have leadership roles in my firm. And if you disagree with that, right, I may be okay with you not agreeing. I may have to understand why you get there or whatever, but here's where we, have to draw the line right we are going to let women partners and, and they're, we're, they're going to lead the firm and we're going to that's just going to be something that we're going to have to agree on and, and so my job now is to you know um figure out how to see it from your perspective and and to um understand where where you're coming from but at the same time make sure that i make a clear you know line and say i don't have to have you agree with me for us to share this space. Um, I, think, I think that that's the first thing. It's just understanding you're not gonna be able to change everybody's minds on this, and it's not really necessarily your job to change it, but you do need to understand where they're coming from, or at least what their perspective is, um, so that you can you know, uh, move forward on some of these things. Um, I, 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 I'm often surprised how, how much we, share in common with people that don't seem at all like us. Um, it, many of the fears, the shames, all the negatives are the same, even with people who like living life of privileges. And, 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 um, and I think it's, for me, it starts with just this acknowledgement that um, my perspective is fine. Um, and, and then the second, you know, I, I guess the third thing I would say is that I often also, when, when I'm in that process, I think, okay, it's okay for me to change my mind. It's perfectly fine for me to change my mind. I was, you know, I, I believed this back then. Now I believe something different. Why? Because I learned something new in, in the middle. Um, it's perfectly fine to change your mind. And I think, I think that it's really hard for people to give permission to themselves to change perspective. Um, but that's what we are all about here. That's that's what this place is about. Um, it's it's about growth, and, um, and if you don't change your mind, you're not growing. And, and so, I, I give myself those. These are um, what I call like my my um, the liberties that I that I give myself. One to assume that you know my beliefs are honest and sincere, and they're valid, um, and then 
that the other persons are as well and then give myself the opportunity to change my mind. Um, so that, you know, if yesterday I believe that, you know, I don't know, I, I have this, this funny thing happened to me. I was, in, um, uh, I was in high school and I was taking a class uh, at the community college. They, they allow you to do that. And it was a speech class. And I took a lot of these classes because I was a foreign uh, English speaker, ESL speaker. And so I would go through these classes to try and force myself to get more comfortable speaking English. And, um, and my topic was on the use of uh, contraceptives, particularly condoms, and whether or not high schools should hand those out to kids. And I gave, you know, my, my whole speech was about how this was such a horrible policy. Um, and I got up and I, I you know, had all of this um, evidence and all of that. Um, and I believed that genuinely and strongly, um, of course, you know, that was relatively easy to say for someone who wasn't sexually active and who knew very little of any of this uh, back then. But over time, um, yeah, I changed my mind. And I realized, I was like, no, you know what? That's actually a good policy to have. And you can teach both things at one or many different ways to approach this problem. And that's a valid one. And the, the science is different. Um, and it changed dramatically, you know, from, from uh, for me, it was a big change because I genuinely believed that it was a bad idea to put a condom in front of a teenager, you know, back then. And it was only with time that I realized, you know what, that was wrong. At Westminster, I probably learned this. Um, there is there there is science to back up the alternative, and it seems like such a simple thing, but if you think about it, it drives many of the policies that we um, embrace and that we make part of our identity early on. Men yeah. and women, you know, marriage should be a man and a woman, and that that's how we've been taught. It's okay to believe that initially, and then you hear the other argument, and you say. Oh well, it won't matter to me. What what impact does it have for me for them for you know two men or two women to marry? And that that process of evolution, allowing yourself to evolve, to change, um, it's really critical. I'm deeply grateful. I'm deeply grateful for you to take the time to do this and for the wisdom that you impart because I think you have so much and I learn from you every single time I have the honor of having a conversation. You're very kind. Thank you so much. I want to express my gratitude to Angles for speaking with us. You can learn more about him by connecting with him on LinkedIn. Next week, I'll be joined by Anne-Marie Vivienne. Anne-Marie is a writer, poet, and friend. She is also the founder and creator of the Wisdom Anthologies, where she documents the culture of elder women and living a life of ritual and meaning. And we will be talking about wisdom. I hope you'll join us. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. 
You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Hookup. <laughs>